Well, we're uh, rolling into summer, and for some, there's a much-needed vacation either on the horizon or uh, maybe you're already there. And um, I don't know, you've worked hard all, all year, I suppose, and, and the kids have survived school, and uh, you're getting ready for a little bit of R&R probably. And that's a good, that's a good thing. I don't know about you, but it's amazing to me how um, vacation or a break from the routine uh, is so exciting. It's awesome. Everybody's super pumped. Hey, we're going to go to the beach, right? Everybody's excited, excited. And then you pack all the stuff, right, Dad? You're loading all the stuff and you're grumbling a little bit because there's so much of it. And then uh, you get all the kids in the car and you get like 30 minutes down the road and then it starts, doesn't it? You know, like, hey, when are we going to stop to eat? Um, I don't want hamburgers. I want chicken nuggets. Where's my pillow? Get off my pillow. Right. I mean, this is the this is the tendency is it, 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 we go so quickly from excitement, happy, joy to uh, complaining and grumbling. And honestly, that's what we find in our text this morning. This this shift from gratitude, from worship to to grumbling and to worry. The Israelites, like we just talked about, the Israelites had been rescued from Egypt. They've been delivered by God through the Red Sea. They've watched this this body of water just part into two walls. And with the Egyptian army on their heels, they uh, they track it through the Red Sea to be delivered by God. God set them free from slavery, from certain death. He brought them into life and freedom. And they stood on the other side of that sea and they watched as God uh, verified his victory by drowning their enemies in a sea of judgment. That moment was probably the moment they realized that their freedom is secure, right? They're realizing that we're we're actually not going to go back to slavery because, well, there went our taskmasters. They're all drowned. And so they realize, okay, God's victory is actually for good. Like we are secure in our newfound freedom. So I love how Exodus 15, um, it says that that, uh, Miriam, Moses' sister, she like grabs the tambourine and she starts doing a dance. I'm not going to do that for you this morning, but she's dancing, she's singing, she starts the party. I I like Miriam. She's fun. And uh, she gets a party going. The people start dancing. They start to sing. A song like what we sang a moment ago, praise the Lord, our mighty warrior, right? Gratitude and worship. Church, that's the right response to deliverance. You agree? All right, so if you've been delivered from sin and from slavery to sin, that's the right response, isn't it? To come to God and be like, where's my tambourine? Like, I need to to dance a little bit, right, Willie? That's what we need, right? So here's what I'm saying. This is the right response to being delivered. Well, when we pick up our text today, we realize the party didn't last long. Just three days into the journey with the God who delivered them, the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, just three days and gratitude turns to grumbling. Worship turns to worry. And what we discover is that Israel wanted rescue from God. They didn't really have a clue what relationship with God looked like. 
And so many today, honestly, still want the same thing. We want God's bread. We want God's water. We're all about his provision. We don't really care about his presence. And this is what we're going to press into this morning. Would you take your Bibles? We're going to be in Exodus 15 and actually want to read a pretty good chunk of the story. Uh, We're going to read Exodus 15, starting in verse 22. We'll skip a little bit and read a few verses of chapter 17. All right, when you find that, go ahead and stand to your feet. We want to stand in honor of God's word. This will be, uh, you'll be able to sit down in just a moment, but we want to stand to honor the word of God. Exodus chapter 15, and let's pick it up in verse 22. The Bible says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. And they encamped there by the water. Now that's an incredible place. That's like Sandals, Jamaica right there. All right, so they set out from Elim and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month. So they're one month into their journey now. After they had departed from the land of Egypt and the whole congregation of the people of Israel, what they do grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and we ate bread to the full. For you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel at evening, you you shall know that that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumblings that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. I want you to skip for a minute over to chapter 17, 
And let's just read the first few verses. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people taking with you a stone. uh, I'm sorry, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Let's pray. Lord, help us today, for we are weak. We're so easily distracted and upset. We're prone to wander from your ways. We're tempted by the ways of the world to not give, but to hoard. Lord, please give us humble hearts, listening ears, Be kind enough to us to rebuke us, merciful enough to forgive us, and strong enough to change us. Most of all, Lord, please grant to us eyes to see and lips to savor Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. And you can be seated, church. Well, in these chapters, just like in all the Bible, what we're seeing is God is revealing himself again in different ways, in new ways. And as uh, you might recall, we say this almost each week through this sermon series, uh, the truth of the Bible. Uh, The Bible is mainly it's mainly uh, focused on telling us who God is and how he intends to save us. So mainly that's what we're reading when we read stories like we're reading today of uh, the people of Israel wandering through a wilderness in a desert. There's no water. The only water they find is bitter water. And then this weird bread stuff from heaven appears and then um, water out of a rock comes. What is the point of all of that? And if we're not careful, we read these type of scriptures and we we sort of force some kind of weird symbolism into it. And that's not the way we're meant to read these texts. We're meant to read this um, asking who is our God and how is he going to save us, to rescue us, to redeem us, to to, uh, provide for us? What is his plan? So we've just seen God as this powerful deliverer, right? He's parted the waters of the Red Sea. And now we're seeing him uh, in in the power of his provision. 
the God who is with his people. And he, he does this, he shows this, to, shows this to us through three miracles of provision. So what are they? We're, we're looking at these three together quickly. He, he talks about this bitter water made sweet. And it's just weird. Moses is, cries out to God like, we're so thirsty. We've got water here, but it's not good. And God's like, pick up that log, throw it in the water. I'll make it good. That's weird, <laughs> right? So... This is a miracle. God works a miracle. There's a point behind it other than quenching thirst. This is what I want us to discover. The second miracle God works of provision is bread from heaven. There's this stuff and we didn't get there's a whole lot more we could have read in chapter 16 about bread from heaven. Manna is what they called it, which manna, the Hebrew word manna just means what is this? What is it? We don't know what this stuff is. What is it? That's what the word manna means. God was providing for his people bread from heaven every morning. They would wake up, they'd walk out of their little tents and they'd go, what is it? Manna. And they'd pick up manna. That's what they would eat, you know, Uh, every day for 40 years. They ate this bread substance. I was talking with Bart this week and he was like, man, you like when you get tired of eating bread. I was like, man, you. Read Exodus. They got real tired of eating manna. But we got to thinking, you know, surely they were some creative women, you know, that were making like banana pudding and, you know, like manicotti. And we were coming up with all kinds of things. If you come up with some creative ones, I want to hear them because I was I was just thinking how cool that would be. But so bread from heaven. God just sends bread from heaven to provide for his people every day. This is a daily reminder that God is their provider. And then the third is pretty wild. Another miracle of God. The people are thirsty. They're so thirsty. They're they're uh, threatening Moses. And uh, Moses is told by the Lord, go to the rock of Horeb. And there, take your take your staff. You remember the you remember the staff, Moses, that you put in the in the Nile and it turned to blood. Well, take your staff and strike the rock. And from that rock, water will come gushing out. And all the people of Israel. Now, remember, two plus million people are going to drink from the rock of living water. So this is a this is a major miracle. Um, What we need to see here is that God delivers and He is who we need every day. He's our daily need. So these miracles help us to know God as provider. But ultimately, ultimately, and this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time. It's showing us that God's ultimate provision, what we need most is Christ. And each of these pictures, each of these things are meant to point us to the ultimate provision of God, which is his only son, Jesus. So uh, how many of you know this is true? We love our deliverance. Like we think about salvation, we think about deliverance, we love our deliverance, but we loathe our dependence. Anybody know that's true? Like we want to be independent. I want to be self-reliant. I want to be able to take care of myself. We, we spend a lot of our lives building our lives in such a way where we don't need anything from anybody. I've got this. But what does the Lord do for his people for 40 years? He's teaching them You don't got this. If you don't have me, you have nothing. 
You need me more than you know. And he's walking them through this journey where they will not only love their deliverance, but they will learn to love their dependence on the deliverer. What we know is that deliverance brings gratitude. You remember dancing, uh, tambourines, worship. Deliverance brings that, but dependence. Look at the text. It brings grumbling, doubt, worry, threats, frustration. This is the way when we're postured in a situation where I can't help myself. I have to depend on you. That's the kind of thing that that stirs up in us. And we want a God that saves us, but then leaves us alone to handle it on our own, typically. And what we're learning from these texts is that's not who he is. And it's not how he saves. I wonder, have you ever found yourself to be a complainer or a grumbler? How quickly does it happen for you to pivot from gratitude to grumbling? I just saw a a couple of wives elbowing their husbands. Don't do that. Don't do that. Uh, Yes, I see you. Don't do that. Um, We... What is it like dig down, dig down deep into your own heart? What is it that typically starts your grumbling? Um, We tend to dismiss this as like an acceptable sin. Maybe it's maybe it's the way that you jump into a, a conversation with someone you don't know. You're trying to build a friendship that's there's nothing there. And so the easiest way to forge some kind of commonality is to find similar things to complain about. You ever found yourself there? It's a real quick friendship, but it's super weak, right? Very fragile. All you have as a bond is the things you hate. Maybe it sounds like this. Man, can you believe that umpire? Like he can't, he can't get a call. He couldn't buy a call if he was rich. You can't make a call, save his life. Good bonding in the, in the stands at little league baseball, right? Or what about, I can't believe we didn't get the year end bonus this year. Our new boss just trying to strangle us to death. There's some bonding that happens among employees as antagonists to their boss, right? Or what about, I can't believe these prices. Yeah, Yeah, right? (laughs) I'm trying not to get myself in trouble here, but uh, man, I... I'm going to tell you, I can identify. So uh, here's, here's the thing. How do we shift? Or what is it that causes the great shift between um, gratitude and, and grumbling? It seems honestly like grumbling is an everyday thing, just a natural part of our conversation. And one of the things that I, I want to just sort of skirt by as we move to what's really the main idea of this text is that the Bible actually forbids grumbling. And it's not unclear about it. It's not an acceptable sin. It is a sin. And it's not okay. And I think we should, we should hear that together. 1 Corinthians 10 in particular lumps these three sins together. It says uh, that idolatry, sexual immorality, and grumbling. Those three sins are lumped together. And it says that people who did such things were destroyed. Did you catch that? This is not a small thing, is it? Uh, Philippians chapter 2 verse 14 commands, do all things without grumbling 
or complaining. That's a pretty pungent demand, isn't it? So God is not unclear. He's not foggy about um, his design for our hearts. And it is that we would not have a complaining or grumbling spirit. And if that's you today, just own it and then repent of it. Okay. now to be clear, grumbling is not the same as bringing your hurts and your sadness before God. That's not a grumble. This is what God wants from us is an honest, clear, gut wrenching, true Deep, maybe depressed, even true confession to the Lord. So the Bible says to cast your cares upon him for he cares for you. So how do we reckon the two? What's the distinction between grumbling and this kind of honest gut level confession? I would suggest to you it's this when you're asking from God and coming honestly to God in that way. You come with open hands, trusting his goodness and expecting to receive. I think that's right. But when you grumble, you're actually coming against God with closed fists, angry that you haven't already received. Do you see the distinction between the two? One is coming to God Honestly, and saying, this is my situation and it's hard and it hurts and I need you. It's this posture of dependence. The other one is coming to God saying, I don't like this. And you should have changed it a while ago. And there is a difference. And the Lord says one he loves and the other he abhors. I want you to think from our text today about grumbling. What, what effect does grumbling have on us? From the scriptures in Exodus, we should see at least these three things. First, it blurs the past. Blurs the past. Here's what I mean. The people of Israel look back at Egypt with longing. Did you see that in the text? It says, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and had bread to the full. Like There's this blurry memory that happens. They forget that they worked for seven days a week making bricks in the hot sun with no straw. Like this was what Egypt looked like. But think about how their memories are affected by the grumbling. There's something about a grumbling spirit that affects your mind and makes you forgetful of what it was really like. And you end up reflecting back on the good old days that really weren't all that good. It blurs the past. And the ironic thing is that when we look back like this, it's not actually to improve how we feel about today, is it? It's really fuel on the fire of more discontent. We don't look back and go, I'm so thankful for the good old days. We're actually looking back to make this weird comparison to say it was so much better then and I still hate it now. It blurs the past. And I was trying to be real preachery and I, and I was going with all bees here, right? So I asked my wife, do you know what bemoans means? And she was like, no. <laughs> so if you don't, I'm sorry, look it up later. Okay, be- it, it bemoans the present. So here's, here's you're, you're grumbling, you're unhappy, you're discontented and you're expressing your discontent. It bemoans the present. This is the effect of a grumbling spirit on us. 
If you look back at what the Israelites were saying, we, they said, would that we had died in Egypt. I wish, I wish we had died in Egypt instead of starving out here now. So now that they've been without water for a few days and they're hungry. Now, these are real concerns. I mean, these are real issues, needs for survival, food, water, right? But when you skip ahead and you look in chapter 17, verse 3, we realize that their livestock is still alive. Like they haven't lost their animals. So their starvation and thirst hasn't got to the point where they're, they're just dying off. And if they were that thirsty, they could probably milk a cow or something, right? Or if they're that hungry, they could probably kill an animal and eat. So, I, I mean, maybe it's just me, but I'm not thinking that these cries are coming out of true starvation. Not true deep necessity, but really just they wanted a different situation. It wasn't what they had expected. It's not what they wanted. So they grumbled. Now, let's move to the third and probably the worst effect of a grumbling spirit. A grumbling spirit blames God. Now, they were saying to Moses all their complaints, but Moses made it very, very clear. You're not grumbling against me, but against the Lord. It was the Lord that had delivered them, not Moses. It was the Lord who was going to provide for them, not Moses. And Moses is telling him, hey, you're grumbling, but it's not really against me. I can't make water or make bread for you. I can't do that. But the truth is, this kind of grumbling thing is built into us, into our sin nature. And it, and it is a grumbling, blaming of God. I want you to not be naive that when you're complaining, when you're grumbling, it's not really against your boss. It's not really against your spouse or your children. It's really against God. Listen to um, the way Adam in the Garden of Eden, the very first grumblings of blaming God. When God came to Adam and was like, what have you done? Why have you done this? And Adam was like, it was that woman that you gave me. Do you hear that? Adam was like double blaming. It's the woman. By the way, you gave her to me. It's your fault. Blaming God. We've been doing this from the very beginning. And Moses is clear in Exodus 16, 7 and 8 when he says, what are we? You grumble against us, but you're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. So our complaining and grumbling is actually an attack on God's character. And it questions his intentions. So listen, do you remember uh, when Jesus is in the boat asleep with his disciples and there's a terrible storm and they're panicked? They're all worried that they're perishing, right? They wake up Jesus. And what do they ask him? The big question, don't you care that we're perishing? So again, there's that exaggerated bemoaning of their circumstance and a blaming of the Lord. Don't you care? If you truly cared, you would change this situation. When we complain, we grumble. It is an attack on his character and it questions his intentions. Think about what all has happened. What all has the Lord shown them about himself? He's delivered them from um, 
slavery in Egypt, from death to life, through the Red Sea. He's changed bitter water into sweet water. And uh, he brought them to camp out at a sandals resort for a while. And they still said, you brought us out here to kill us. Our grumbling, it blurs our memory, exaggerates our situation, bemoan, we bemoan the present, and we blame God rather than bless Him with praise. All right, so all of that is uh, about grumbling. I just wanted to kind of hit that with you because it's repeated 15 times in this text. There's no way to get around that kind of repetition. So uh, now that we've dealt with that, let's get into the deepest part of this text, which is pointing us to Christ. God gives victory over the enemy, but not so we can be self-reliant, self-satisfied, or self-governed. He wants us to depend on Him, to obey Him, to love Him. That's what God is doing with this people. He's shaping a people to be known for faith, like true dependence, trust, And he's getting down to the core of it. We must depend on Christ. So here's a big question. We're going to answer it. How can you depend on Christ? First answer. Christ is the true and better Israel. The true and better Israel. Listen to what's happening in the the text. The Bible says that God is testing them. He's testing them. Think for a moment. This is the God who parted the Red Sea and they've been encamped on the other side of the Red Sea, partying and celebrating and singing. And then Moses leads them into the desert. And for three days, there's no water. Let me ask you, have you just read that part of the text and gone, "Okay, why? Lord, God, who can part the seas. God who can, and we could go through the list of all the plagues they had just experienced. Three days into the wilderness with no water and there's millions of people walking along following the Lord. They must be saying, why? If you can, if you have the power to save us, surely you have the power to sustain us. Think about what God may be trying to reveal to them. They finally see water off in the distance only to get to it and they can't drink it. It's undrinkable water, bitter. And so they cry out to God and the Lord works a miracle. I was thinking about how cool this little miracle is and there's probably a lot more here we can say, but think about it this way. What was the very first plague in Egypt that God brought a plague on the people of Egypt as, a, as an act of judgment. What was the very first one? That's right. Moses took his staff, put it in the Nile River, and all that water turned what? Yeah. So the drinkable water, the usable water, was made undrinkable, unusable. Their life source became a portrait of death. Now God has led them out of the Red Sea and the very first miracle he works for his people is the inverse. He takes undrinkable, unusable water, throws a log in it and makes it sweet. This is a God of mercy, right? Now think, think again, like do they deserve this? 
What is it that provokes God to, to do this act of kindness? Mercy. They grumbled. They complained. They, they fussed at Moses. And the Lord blessed them. Who is our God? Remember, this is what we're learning. Who is our God? We must say he is a God of mercy who blesses those who do not deserve it. But we see that the Lord is testing them. He's testing them to see if they will walk in his ways. He's shaping a people, not just delivering them from Pharaoh, but delivering them for himself. You are not, we are not just saved from something. We're saved for someone. He's calling us to be his people, a people who trust him every day. And what we see with Israel that we ought to relate to is that they fail and fail again and fail again and fail again. But God is faithful. Where Israel was tested in the wilderness, they quickly fell short. But now Jesus, the true and better Israel, the contrast is in the wilderness. When he was tempted in the wilderness, he was victorious. He passed the test. Remember what Jesus was tempted to do? If you, you're hungry, well, just turn this rock into bread, right? And Jesus, to respond to that temptation, he actually quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And you know it, this verse, he says this way, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. But do you know the context of that quote? Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2 and 3. Look at the context. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What we learn here is that Jesus in his own Wilderness temptation is referencing back to the test, the testing of Israel in the wilderness. And he's saying what God was proving in their hearts, a failure, a, a heart of grumbling, not of gratitude, a heart of worry, not of worship. What he was proving about them, he is now proving the inverse in Christ and Christ, the exact inverse, the one who is tested and comes out passing the test. Jesus is the true and better Israel. What Jesus knew about the manna, which we'll get into in a moment, is that it wasn't meant to satisfy, ultimately. It was meant to draw them to the voice of the one who truly satisfies. Listen to his quote. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Christ is the true and better Israel. Secondly, Christ is the true bread of life. It's amazing the Lord blessed his grumbling people, right? When they could have been judged, they received his manna of mercy. Manna is a miraculous provision. Every day, the people would gather just enough. If they hoarded manna, what we, what we could have read in Exodus 16, if they hoarded it, it, turned, it, it grew worms. And um, great Bible word here, it stank. <laughs> I like that one. Um, the Hebrew for that means stank. 
And, uh, but every day the, the people would gather just enough. This is a great principle. But how does this manna point us to Jesus? And just like uh, J.M. was referencing this morning, Jesus himself in John chapter 6 looks back to this moment. He had just fed all those 5,000 people with that little boy's lunch, right? He fed those 5,000 plus people. Then he and his disciples went across the Sea of Galilee and the crowd followed him. They came around there to him. And uh, he looks at the crowd again and he's like, uh, man, you guys, y'all are just here for the food, essentially. Well, they said to him, Moses gave manna from heaven. What sign do you bring? After he had just fed them with a, a, you know, two fish and five loaves. And Jesus responds in John 6 by saying, it wasn't Moses. It wasn't Moses who fed you in the wilderness. And then he says, there's a verb shift that's really important. He says, it wasn't past tense Moses. It is my father who gives you true bread. Now, Jesus is making this wild comparison. The manna in the wilderness isn't the true bread that you really need. There's something that was coming that's later that that was supposed to be a picture pointing you toward. And it wasn't Moses who gave it to you. It was my father. And now my father is giving you true bread. That's the first thing Jesus says. Moses's bread was a sign. You know, a sign isn't the real deal, right? I mean, if you're going to Disney World on your way there, you see all the signs. Walt Disney World, 10 miles ahead. Walt Disney World, five miles ahead. It would be you would really make your children grumble if you got out and took a picture with the sign and turned around and came home. (laughs) Right. Because it's not about the sign. The sign is pointing to something greater. A greater thing is ahead. And what Jesus says is the manna in the wilderness was a sign of a greater true bread that's coming. Jesus says his sign was pointing to me. The point Jesus is making, listen, in feeding the 5,000, he used that as a, a platform to teach this message. I am The bread of life that has come down from heaven. So Jesus says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. What I love here is that Jesus didn't just come to give bread. He came to be bread. It's not just about his provision. It's about a person. And satisfaction doesn't just come from his hands. It comes from him, who he is. This is what Jesus was saying. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by, the, by every word. Feast on him, not just what he can give you. So Christ says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Um, there's so much great theology wrapped up in this statement. I just want to... Hit you with three really quick truths about this. First, it means that Christ has divine origin from heaven. Did you hear that? I am the bread that came down from heaven. 
divine origin. Jesus always existed as the Son of God with the Father. Secondly, Christ has divine purpose. He came. He he didn't just fall here. He came with an intent, with a goal, with a mission. When we read the rest of John 6, we, we discover he says, I came to do the Father's will. He comes with divine purpose. What was the Father's will? John 6, he says, to save all that the Father gives me. I won't lose any of them. I will raise up those believers in the last day. What a great promise, right? This bread is not just to satisfy your hunger. It's to satisfy your soul forever. And then the third big, beautiful theology that comes out of this. I am the bread that came down from heaven statement is he has divine authority. This is the first of seven I am statements in God in John's gospel. And when Jesus uses that word, I am, he's not just using the typical words. He's choosing to use the name for God. Jehovah, Yahweh, the name that God gave himself at the burning bush with Moses. Jesus is saying, I am who I am. And I'm the bread who came from heaven. The third big truth about Christ here is that he is what he says in John six. I am the bread of life, the bread of life. And here's the truth. Whoever eats, Jesus says, whoever eats will live forever. Jesus told all those people in John six, your fathers ate the bread that that Moses gave. They ate the manna. And then he said this, and they all died. But whoever eats the bread that I will give, this bread, who I am, whoever eats this bread, they will live forever. He says, I'm the bread of life. This bread is not just for Jews, we find out in John 6. Jesus says, anyone who eats this bread, it's not just a Jewish celebration. This bread of life comes to you. Jesus explains also in John 6. He says, the bread that I shall give is my flesh. And it will come to you through my blood. And then he's got these these thousands of people there. He's teaching and talking about bread and eating. And then he gets really weird. And he says, if you want to come to me and live forever, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And lo and behold, the crowds began to walk away. It got weird. And what Jesus was saying is, I'm not calling you to cannibalism. He was saying, I'm not calling you to come and eat another meal. I'm calling you to the deepest kind of intimacy with me. This is not about provision anymore. It's about a person. And your hope of salvation comes in Christ. In his body and his blood and in that alone. So Christ is the bread, true bread. And then Exodus 17, the the third pointing to Christ, and we'll move quickly here, is this. Christ is the rock of living water. Christ is the rock of living water. Now, in case you think I'm just coming up with weird stuff. I want you to look, or you can, maybe we'll put it on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and specifically in verse 4, 
It says this, talking about their journey through the Red Sea, Paul's writing, remembering all of that. And then he says, um, they all ate the same spiritual food. And then in verse four, they all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. Look at the next phrase. And the rock was what? Christ. Wow, right? The Apostle Paul, who's been taught how to read the Bible from Jesus, looks back on this situation with the rock of Horeb and he says, that rock that provided water for all those people, that rock is a picture of Christ. So you say, well, how? Well, here again, we're seeing another typological, another type of Christ, but it's not in a person, it's in a thing. And when the people complained and even threatened Moses, Moses said, these people are about to stone me, right? They cried out in thirst and Moses took his staff and struck the rock. Listen, instead of striking the people, he struck the rock instead of striking the people. The rock was smitten by God and afflicted, Isaiah 53 would say. And instead of striking us, God the Father has struck His own Son. And from Christ, through His suffering in our place, living water flows to anyone who would drink. Those who drank from the water of the rock in the wilderness were only satisfied for a while. And the wonder of it all faded away. But if you drink deeply, of the mercy of Jesus Christ. The Bible says you will never thirst again. Now, my time's gone, but I want to uh, I want to kind of get personal with this. I want to ask you this question. What does that mean? You'll never thirst again. You'll never hunger again. I want you to think about it because we often think about what that means in terms of eternity, right? We think, well, you know, if I believe in Christ, if I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior, then forever and ever and ever, I'll be satisfied with Him in heaven. But for now, like, it's going to be, I mean, this is going to be a tough life, and we just have to live through every tough day. I want you to think for just a minute what Jesus promised, and I want you to think about whether or not you really believe it. Because Jesus said, whoever feasts on me, whoever drinks the water that I give, he says this, John 6, 35, I'm the bread of life. And whoever comes to me will never hunger, will never thirst. Jesus doesn't say asterisks in heaven. I wonder if you really believe that he came to satisfy you today. Today, And how does that work? How, how are our, our hungers and our appetites satisfied today? And I would suggest to you at least a couple of ways. One, he doesn't just satisfy your appetite. He changes it. Listen, the man or woman who's been addicted to some kind of drug or alcohol for a long time struggles with this. 
But I want to tell you, Jesus doesn't just satisfy your craving for whatever you're addicted to. He changes your cravings. So your appetite changes. And because your appetite changes, you're fully satisfied in Jesus. That's the first way. And the second way is exactly what J.M. pointed us to. He changes your heart. When we come to God in the wilderness, we come with this, this like entitlement. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. But when God takes that heart out of you in salvation and puts his heart in you, everything changes in the new covenant. And Jesus says to us, they're hungry. You feed them. And there's something that changes in the heart of a believer from this gimme, gimme, gimme grumbling to a Lord, will you use me to bless and to give? The way to satisfaction in Christ is in fulfillment, in in being used by Him to bless others. Think about at the woman at the well, John chapter 4. The disciples had gone to get food and uh, they come back and they're like, Jesus, we got some food. And he's like, boys, I ain't hungry. What do you mean, man? You've been you've been hiding bread in that in, in your in your coat. He's like, no, I've got food that you don't know anything about. Listen to what he says. My food is to do the will of my father. There was a satisfaction in him, a lack of hunger. He was satisfied By giving, not by receiving. Church, let's come to Christ. Drink deeply. Feast on Him. Be satisfied in Him. Let's be transformed by Him. Amen? Pray with me if you will.